0: I will speak to my fears I will preach to my doubts That you were faithful then You'll be faithful now You make mountains move You make giants fall You use songs of praise To shake prison walls And I will speak to my fears and I will preach to my doubt that you were faithful then, you'll be faithful now,
1: that you were faithful then, you'll be faithful now. So glad to have you worshiping with us this morning. I think I'm on. Yeah. And I just want to thank our praise team and uh, worship band. They did a great job. I appreciate the, the service and the focus on uh, bringing us before the Lord and His Word and causing us to, to worship in spirit and in truth, or at least providing the opportunity for us to do that, whether we did or not is kind of up to us. I'd invite you, uh, before I, I pray, I want to call our attention to a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I'm not big on reading announcements. Uh, I figure most people can read. And as I've heard before, if you can't read, you don't listen. So uh, it's okay. Uh, so there's stuff online. If you're worshiping with us online, just go to our webpage. Uh, the Creekside News uh, puts out all the information that you should need. If you have any questions, you can email Megan or it's on our website there. I do want to call our attention to this fact that one of our our gals in our church had a really nasty fall. Um, Gail Hoyce is in, she's home, but she's in kind of bad shape. And there's a need for some people to come alongside to provide some meals for this Tuesday and this Thursday, and also to provide some rides, Paul, her husband, can't drive, so he needs people to take him to the store to get groceries and that kind of stuff. But since Gail is uh, in a neck brace and can't really do things on her own, they need somebody to stay with her while he goes to the store. So if you could volunteer for that, uh, you could. if you're here this morning, uh, you could talk to Karen Metzler. And I don't know. I don't see where Karen's at. There she is, back in the corner. So uh, Karen Metzler is over here. You could talk to her and let her know your availability, or you can uh, call her on the phone if you have the directory on your on your phone. And if not, you could email the church and get a hold of Megan, and Megan will get a hold of Karen. Okay? So I sure appreciate that if you could help out in any way. That would be greatly appreciated. Let's pray. Father, I come to you this morning, and I just know that. Life has been so crazy for so many of us. Uh, This last year has been marked by discouragement and frustration and illness and restrictions and disappointment, financial hardships for some and for others, just the awkwardness of trying to relate in a world that is seemingly chaotic and seemingly reeling out of control sometimes and we just come to you to acknowledge our frailty to acknowledge our humanity to ask for your mercy and your grace and for your wisdom to pray that you would bring healing to our country that's so divided that you would bring sanity to our lives our emotional stability we pray that you would give us grace to press ahead in these difficult times, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despising the shame is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Lord, help us to claim the truths of the songs we just sang, that we believe in God our Father, in Christ his Son, and in the Holy Spirit, that God is three in one and that you are working powerfully for your glory and the gain of your kingdom. We ask that you would open our eyes from, in your word that we might behold wonderful truths from your law that we could be changed in our own hearts and transformed so that we can see the lives of others around us impacted and changed for your glory as well. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Now, after I pray, then I'm going to introduce something that's kind of a downer, okay? Uh, I just read this week, I think my facts are straight, that the national debt is now $28 trillion. Just to break it down for you, that's $85,000 per person in the United States. That's not $85,000 per adult taxpayer, that's $85,000 per person in the United States. And when we figure in Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare on top of that, guess what? Now the bill is $569,000 per person in the United States. We have a problem. But the thing of it is, we have a problem and we just continue to ignore the problem because that's how we as people are, right? When something presented with the facts we really don't like, we tend to just kind of ignore those facts and press on because we like living in our delusion. Well, that's what's happening in America. And so then, on top of all that, you know, we, never, then we're, we're, we, get, we get $1.9 trillion that we just got added to that. Okay? So it's just kind of like a snowball effect. But everybody's now not too concerned about it because we're all trying to figure out how we're going to spend our check, right? We're trying to figure out how we're going to spend our stimulus check. We just keep on spending you know, stick our head in the sand, it's going to be better, just keep on spending, keep on spending. And what's, what's really true for individuals is that when we're presented with facts that go against our preference or against our what we'd like to think is true, we like to live in denial because it helps us cope with something that's a little bit too scary for us. And what's unfortunate is that the way... America and the way we deal with the national debt is much the same way that many people respond to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Oh, we're presented with the facts about Jesus, his identity, and his ministry. But we just really, that's kind of an interruption into what we prefer, interruption into what we think is good for us, and so we like to deny it and reject it and just kind of live in in that world. And this morning, we're confronted with a passage of Scripture that shows us head-on what that really looks like. In other words, in Matthew chapter 13, in verses 53 through 58, Jesus reveals to us the way that many people respond, or the story shows us how many people respond. His closest relatives responded to Him is the same way that many people throughout the centuries have responded to Him. It, it reveals to us Sort of an anatomy of unbelief. What, what unbelief looks like for everyone. Now I'm going to kind of give you an overview here. Because in this passage, verses 53 to 58. It's Jesus' closest relatives and closest, the people closest to him who reject him. And when they do that, they kind of give us this picture of what it's like for a lot of people to reject Jesus. And... This is the introduction of a new section. So in verses 53 and following through chapter 17, 27, there's a lot going on. And the parables that Jesus has just told that give the disciples kind of an idea of how they're supposed to live in this kingdom world that's not kind of what they expected need to be kept in mind because as we keep going forward, we need to remember the lessons of those parables so that we can understand the growing confusion and the increasing hostility that is towards Jesus that we live in today. All that opposition to Jesus that we're going to read about in these next chapters and all of the hostility has just been perpetuated and kept going. And so we need to keep this all in mind. And in the section that we're in, we, we encounter this opposition, and then Jesus comes back with miracles. There's opposition, and then there's miracles. All that does is to serve to solidify the stubbornness of the human heart, the spiritual blindness of people, and we begin this opposition in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Now, I'm going to begin reading with verse 47, because if you remember last week, Kyle left off at verse 46, so that was the, the, the treasure, you know, the hidden treasure in the land, in in the the pearl of great price. And so I'm going to read with verse 47, then I'm going to make a few comments about the last two parables of Jesus, and then we'll get into this anatomy of unbelief. I begin reading in Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down. And gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and take out, of the, wicked from, take out the wicked from among the righteous. And will cast him into the furnace of fire, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you understand all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, is like a head of a household who brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. Okay, I'm going to stop there and just kind of give you the the Reader's Digest version, the cliff notes on these two last two parables. What what Jesus is talking about here is the, the parable of the dragnet is parallel in its emphasis to the parable of the wheat and the tares. There's coming a judgment at the end of the age, and at that judgment, there's going to be a separation between those who are the followers of Jesus, the true followers of Jesus, from the pretenders. Or maybe not only the pretenders of those who follow Jesus, but the detractors. Okay? So those who are pretending to follow Jesus, or those who are antagonists and detractors, are going to be separated from those who are the true followers of Jesus. At the end of the age, that's the represented by the fish, the good fish and the bad fish, okay? The good fish are the followers of Jesus, and the bad fish are those who are are not. And the tragedy of rejecting Jesus is intended to serve as a motivation. For those of you who are not following Christ, to turn from your sin and trust Jesus so that you will not result, the result will not be this tragic end. And it's the motivation for those of us who know Jesus to... Share with everybody that we can to keep as many as possible from having that tragic end. I have a note in my Bible I wrote, Do I really, does it really bother me that people are going to hell? Because that's what Jesus said. And that's not a popular lesson these days, right? I'm not supposed to talk about that. But it's true, and Jesus talks about it because he doesn't want people to go there, and neither do I, and neither should any of us. And that's why we proclaim Christ crucified, that people would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. And then in verse 51, we have this story, have you understood these things? And it doesn't seem like a parable, but it is a parable, because he says, uh, if you've received these things, and they said, yeah, we, we understand these things. We understand these things about the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom is uh, not... Inaugurated right now. I mean, Jesus didn't set up his throne right there and start ruling on earth, but he set up his throne and started ruling in the hearts of those who would submit to him. And so there was this delay in the, the full consummation of the kingdom. That was the mystery of the kingdom. The mystery of the kingdom was also that they would let Gentiles in instead of just Jews. It wasn't just the Israelites that would be part of the kingdom of God, but there would be Israelites as well. Do you understand these mysteries? Yeah. Well, if you do, he says, then you're like it. You're like, that's the Introduction to the parable, right? Then you're like a, a guy who brings out his treasure chest. <laughs> you know, he didn't have didn't have safety deposit at the bank, so he had his treasure chest. He brought his treasures. There's old treasures and new treasures being shown to him. So that every disciple of Christ, anyone who's put their faith or their trust in Christ, from the disciples on, we're, we're we have a treasure. We have a treasure to share. And the treasure is old. It's the Old Testament truths that find their fulfillment in Jesus so that people fully understand the gospel. And it's the new covenant truths that tie the old and the new together that talk about Jesus Christ as King. And he died on the cross to save us from our sins and to redeem all who would believe. And we have this privilege of sharing the glorious good news that people should submit to his rule and his reign night right now, waiting for the consummation of the age when we'll be restored to glory with God in heaven. So that's my flyover version of those two parables. But again, motivation for us to share the gospel because some will spend an eternity apart from Christ as those fish who are drug in by the net and thrown away. An encouragement for us to share the gospel because we've been entrusted with this treasure. We're not supposed to, as you know, one guy says, get all we can, can all we get, and sit on the can. We're supposed to get all we can and then share with the world. And now we embark on this anatomy of unbelief. As you look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58, the anatomy of unbelief manifests itself in four parts. And these parts, I think, are intended to to bring conviction on the heart of everyone who's not trusting Christ so that they'll be convinced of their need to turn and trust in Him. And they're intended to motivate all of us who know Christ to share the message of Christ, just as Jesus did, with his hometown folks. You know, I don't know about you. Isn't it the hard, the hardest people to share the gospel with, are the people that are the closest to us? We have the most to lose, as far as relationship with the people that are closest to us. Those are the hardest ones to share with, but those are the ones Jesus goes to here. And so we see, first of all, uh, and I'm going to read now. Verses 53 through 58, which I didn't read before. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these parables, okay? These are code words here. I'm going to stop. Verse 53. And it came about when Jesus had finished. (coughs) Excuse me. You go back to chapter 7, verse 28. If you want to write this down, you can. But it's chapter 7, verse 28. Chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 19, verse, verse 1 and verse 19. Yeah, 19, 1 and 26, 1. All of those begin with this similar little phraseology. And it came about when Jesus had finished. It came about when Jesus had finished. So those are the major sections of the Gospel of Matthew. There are five of them. Now, each major section marked out by these, this phrase. Okay, I continue to read. And he departed from there. And he came into his hometown. He began teaching them in the, their synagogue so that they became astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom? Remember that phrase. And these miracles and miraculous powers. Is, it, is, the, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. The first part of this anatomy of unbelief is that our unbelief tends to be oblivious to that which is very obvious. Now, you see, when Jesus had finished, I talked about that, but then he departed. Where did he depart from? Well, he probably departed from the house that he was living in in Capernaum or ministering from in Capernaum where he had been ministering for almost a year. If we went back to chapter 13, verse 36, we would see that he had been in Capernaum and he went into this house and he came out of the house and he did this different ministry, but he was there for almost a year. And this negative response, increasingly negative reaction to Jesus in Capernaum, we see this in... um, Verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 23, I'm sorry. Chapter 11, verse 23. Remember, he says, Woe to you, Capernaum, and you're judged because of their unbelief. This increasing hostility, increasing unbelief towards Jesus had led Jesus to conclude his time in Capernaum by teaching parables. And remember what the parables were for? Reveal the truth to believers, conceal the truth from unbelievers. So, that's what he was doing. He was trying to conceal the truth from the unbelievers and reveal it to the believers. And because they were increasingly hostile towards him in Capernaum, he decided at the end, oh, okay, it's time to leave. Ten years ago, I went fishing on a major fishing trip with my son and my, my dad. So, and we went with some other guys We went to Canada. And we were on this lake, and we would try fishing, And we'd try fishing in a spot, and if there were no fish biting in that spot, what would we do? Stay in that spot all day? No. Uh, We would move on to another spot where the fish were hopefully biting, and then they'd bite. And if where they are biting, then we'd stay there. Well, Jesus was seeing if they bit, and he'd been there for a year. Fish weren't biting. So he moved on. Uh, He moved on from Capernaum. And then it moved on, and, and, and so he went to his hometown in Nazareth, okay? And when he got there, he began, it says, speaking in their in their synagogues. Verse 54. He began teaching them in their synagogues. If you're taking notes, you can look, you could write down Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, because in Matthew chapter 4, it says that Jesus' pattern was to go into their home, into their synagogues, and he would teach, he would preach the gospel, and he would perform miraculous signs. So that was kind of the, the thing that Jesus did, he was moving around. And when he did this, they said, where did this man get this wisdom? And we see the same phrase in verse 56. Where did this man get this wisdom? Well, they wanted to know the source. Did it come from God or someplace else? Now, you think, well, what was he doing? It was miraculous stuff, so where did they think it was coming from? But we have to be gracious with these people, because if you looked with me, and you don't have to look with me right now, but in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 46 to the end of chapter 12, and then right here, sandwiching the parables, all the parables of Matthew 13 have been sandwiched. Matthew 12, 46, to the end of the chapter, and now Matthew 13, verse 53 On both ends of that, both bookends, we see it's the people closest to Jesus who have the problem. They're confused about who Jesus is. They don't know his identity. They're confused about his ministry. And so these are the people that he's ministering to. Well, why were they confused? Well, I don't know if you remember this story in John chapter 1, the guy by the name of Nathaniel. And he says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? They weren't expecting a prophet to come out of Nazareth. They weren't expecting any religious teacher to come out of Nazareth. It was some little no-name village in in, in Galilee. Who, who, Who was going to come out of there? And they certainly didn't expect the kingdom of God to be kind of this on pause thing. Where, you know, they expected the Messiah to come, set up his throne, and that was it. No, but Jesus came preaching a kingdom that was present through his rule in their hearts until he would come back and reign for sure on earth. Now, that, that, that just didn't fit their categories. And so they were confused about who he was. And so here you think about it. Now, some of you grew up in a small town and you moved to the big city. Some of you have always grown up in the big city. So just imagine it's your neighborhood if it's not your city, okay? But if you grew up in a small town, this is the small town that Jesus was raised in as a little boy. He grew up a snotty-nosed little boy running around, and the old grandmas in the town, they knew who he was. And he went to school in this town, and he worshiped with his parents in the synagogue in this town. And his dad was the local carpenter in this town. And now he comes in, and he's teaching with authority. And he's performing miracles. And they're going, where did he get this stuff? They couldn't deny, you know, that that he had done this stuff. They couldn't deny he was teaching with authority. They couldn't deny the miraculous powers. They'd just go, what happened? This is Jesus, you know, his his mother's brother's sister. What happened? They were astonished. They were amazed, astounded. Uh, They were impressed with Jesus' miracles. Kind of must have been like, and, and maybe you'll relate to this, can we run that video clip now that this happened in, in Britain in an in a, uh, interesting way?
0: Okay, what's the dream? I, I'm trying to be a professional singer. And why hasn't it worked out so far, Susan? I've never been given the chance before, but he's hoping it'll change. Okay, and who would you like to be as successful as? Elaine Page. Elaine Page. Like what are you going to sing tonight? <laughs> yeah? Yes. Yeah. Hãy gone cho
1: Yeah, she shocked them, right? Uh, They didn't know. they, They got blown away by what was going on. Jesus showed up in his hometown. And he spoke with the words of God. And he spoke with the authority of God. And he performed the miracles that only God could perform. And his family and his friends and his neighbors and the people that grew up with him were going, where did he get this stuff? How could he do this? Urban Dale is the hometown boy. Alan Lazard played at Iowa State University. Now he's a Green Bay Packer. If he came back and started telling everybody what to do and showing that he was a big-shot important person and trying to boss people around, they would go, whoa, wait a second. This is little Alan. We know him. He grew up in our neighborhood. He's the little boy that played on... The he's delivered our papers, you know. No. Jesus was there they couldn't deny it but they this was God's stuff but they didn't want to recognize it as God's stuff what Jesus was doing and Jesus was doing there what he had done every place else in John chapter uh, 20 verses 30 and 31 we read these words so then many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book the book of John but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and by believing you might have life in his name. This was Jesus' pattern. Not just in Capernaum, not just in Nazareth, but wherever he went, he spoke with authority and he performed miracles with authority. Jesus had fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy. He had lived a perfect life. Jesus had performed miracles. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He promised them forgiveness and eternal life. And all these things were lived out before them. And then the question is, what are they going to do with it? Well, where did he come from? We don't know. Where did he get these miraculous powers? Despite the obvious, they were oblivious to the truth. It was right there in front of them. And they just denied it. The question for us is, Have we done the same thing? Have you done the same thing? The truth of who Jesus is is right in front of us. Have we denied it? Don't become oblivious to the obvious. The second aspect of the anatomy of unbelief is that we focus on what's futile. Now, I'd, I'd submit to you that unbelief oftentimes masks itself with a series of irrelevant questions that are intended to discredit Jesus or discredit who Jesus is and discount the messenger in order to distract the mind away from what's true so that we can live in denial of the reality. Questions. Well, and then we see them here, what they did. Is not this the carpenter's son? That's verse 56, I believe. 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? What's a carpenter? Who was a carpenter? A carpenter's the guy who worked with wood, he worked with stone, he, he was the, the builder, the carpenter. It's Nazareth, small town, right? You, you Google carpenters in the Des Moines area, right? <laughs> Blows your mind. The carpenter. He's the guy who built their window frames. He's the guy who built their furniture. He's the guy who built their doors. He's the guy who built their yokes for their oxen. He's the guy who built the wood frames for their plows. He's the guy that helped lay the bricks for their homes and did repairs. He's the son of this guy, okay? His dad was the carpenter. They knew Joseph. They knew Jesus. He's just some no-name little kid. His dad's insignificant guy. He's just the carpenter in town, right? So is this not the carpenter's son? He's hardworking, but he's insignificant. How did such a person of low degree, without theological training, become such a big shot? How did he become so important? How did he become so popular? How did he become so influential? I don't know about this. How dare he come in? This is Jesus, how dare he come in here acting all high and mighty and telling us what to believe and who he is and he is somehow the Messiah and that the kingdom of God has come? What right does he have to say that? I mean, his mother's name's Mary, for Pete's sake. Every other woman in the town is named Mary. And his brothers are here, and his sisters are here, and we know this family. I mean, they're, they're nice people, don't get me wrong, but they're no big deal, right? There's no pedigree here, nothing that would set him apart as being significant and influential that we should listen to him. Where did this man get this, these things? Again, see the repeat, 54, 56. So the homeboys were impressed with his wisdom and power, but they weren't really willing to admit that this came from God, not really willing to accept him as the Messiah. I wonder how the people in St. Charles, Iowa, the childhood neighbors, the family and friends of our governor, Kim Reynolds, I wonder how they feel that when, when people say, yeah, she's the governor, and you have to listen to what she says. She told you, you know, you should probably wear these mask things. I wonder if some of them are kind of going, that's Kimmy. I'm not going to, she's not going to boss me around. I'm not, I'm not going to listen to her. I mean, I babysat this kid. Well, who makes her so important? Here's Jesus, the Savior of the world. So our, our facts, the, the, I mean, our, our, we, the facts tend to get obliterated when we focus on what's really futile. What's really not important, it really doesn't matter where Jesus grew up or his upbringing, his people, his family. What matters is who he is. U.S. debt's a real thing, folks. Whether we stick our head in the sand or not, it's a real thing. Jesus is the real deal. In our pride and our jealousy and our self-sufficiency, it's easier to explain away than it is to embrace that Jesus is the Savior. And that's what it is. It's selfishness and pride and and arrogance. The questions focused attention on what's insignificant to distract them away from what is really relevant. And people do it today. I mean, I have people, they, they say, well, you know, Jesus is a good teacher. He's a moral teacher. No, he wasn't. He wasn't very moral if he lied about being the Son of God. He's a liar if he's not Jesus. I submit that he's Jesus, so you get the whole context. I'm not saying Jesus is a liar. Jesus is God. He didn't lie. But if you say that he's not God, then you're calling him a liar. Just so you're straight with that, okay? Some people say, well, how do you know he really rose from the dead? Well, I mean, the the, the virgin... uh, The burgeoning evidence of historical facts is that Jesus is no longer in the tomb, okay? And you have many eyewitnesses who saw him afterwards, and many of those eyewitnesses were willing to die for the very fact that they said they saw him after he rose from the dead. Okay, so he rose from the dead. Then other people say, well, how do you know, is he really the only way to God? Is he really the only way to God? Well, I don't know, but he said so. He says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So I tell people, if I've ever had these conversations, I say, well, don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' word for it. You want to have an argument, argue with him. I remember having a conversation once with an atheist, a professed atheist, and I said to this person, I said, if I could answer all of the questions you have about Jesus and God satisfactorily, would you believe? Well, he didn't really answer that question. Because it really wasn't about answering the questions. It was entrenched unbelief. It's a commitment not to believe, but the questions are just a smokescreen. And I think the questions here in the text are a smoke screen that are evident in the lives of all kinds of people who don't want to turn and trust in Jesus. And so I ask you, you know, the thing is, the questions disguised defiance and disclosed spiritual blindness. And guess what? Spiritual blindness is not something that I can remove from someone. Only God can remove it. And Paul said it. Uh, you can write it down in 2 Corinthians chapter. 4 verse 3 and, and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing for the god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that may not, not see the glory of Christ who is the image of god for we preach not ourselves but Christ Jesus as lord and ourselves as his bond servants for the God who said, let there be light, is the one who shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is God who opens our eyes to see who Jesus is. So we do not, are not responsible to bring people to Christ. Bring people, we're to bring Christ to people because we cannot bring people to Christ. That make sense? I hope I said that right. We are to bring Christ to people because we cannot bring people to Christ. Only God can do that. That's God's job. So Jesus is in Nazareth bringing himself to the people. And God has to open their eyes to see that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I ask you, are you seriously seeking or are you just focusing on what is futile? Just on smoke cream. If you're seriously seeking, then God is listening, and he will respond. Third aspect of this anatomy of unbelief is our unbelief stumbles over what's straightforward. And verse 57 says, and they stumbled. Actually, it says they took offense, but the literal translation would be they stumbled over him. And Jesus didn't have too much to say for people who stumbled over him. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 6, he said, uh, you know, not a good thing to stumble over me. That's my paraphrase. He didn't really say it that. But it's not a good thing to stumble over me. Warning: Those closest to him. Think about that. Those closest to him. And from whom the culture would normally expect the greatest allegiance. Who are the people closest to him? The people that you would expect the greatest allegiance from. His family. His hometown people. Those, his hometown folks. These were the people who rejected him. They stumbled over him. They let his simple beginnings, his lack of formal training, education, his sudden popularity, his miraculous works, his speaking with the authority of God. They let their own jealousy, their own pride, their own insecurities, their own selfishness become stumbling blocks to who he really was, who he really is, that he's he's the son of God. The rejection of God's messenger And this, I think, is true, and it may be true for you this morning. The rejection of God's messenger is really a rejection of God's mastery. A rejection of God's tool to bring the gospel is a rejection of God's rule in our heart. As one put it this way, Christianity has not been tried and found lacking. It has been found difficult and not tried. Many today stumble over Jesus. I mean, this idea that you have to turn from your sin and repent and put your life and your trust in the hands of Jesus and then surrender your life every day, every moment, every aspect of it to Christ is reprehensible to people. And Jesus knew this, and he said in John chapter 3, if you look on the screen, I think we'll have John chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. We have it? No, we don't. So you can use your Bible. That's good. John chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. The only reason we don't have it is because I didn't give it to him, okay? So don't blame anybody but me. John chapter 3, beginning with verse 18. uh, Jesus says this, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the darkness and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does, not, does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. Folks, we're born in sin. We don't like... I mean, I'm, yesterday my wife is revealing some things in my life that I don't really like. Woo! Light goes on. That's when I have to remember that God brought her into my life, not necessarily to make me happy, but to make me holy. Okay? And you know, there's every part of me that doesn't like that. My fallen nature says, no, no, no. Not until we surrender to Christ as Savior. Will life make sense? Will there be fullness will there be joy will there be purpose and they are there you know that's where people are we want a tolerant jesus right a, a jesus who accepts everybody without judging anybody we want a santa claus jesus who blesses us with material prosperity we want a woke jesus who will uh, trans, he'll substitute biblical theology for human philosophy, like Marxism, or you fill it in, whatever one you want to put in there. We want that kind of Jesus. That's one Jesus everybody wants today. And we get a Jesus in the Bible who's none of that garbage. He's God. And he says, you must submit to me and surrender to me, and I must be Lord of your life, or you will die. And our stubborn rebellion says, oh, you want to bet? Well, you can fight with God if you want. I can tell you who's going to win. Jesus is there inviting them. And so my question to you folks is that Jesus goes on in John chapter 5 and he says, you know, there's this witness. There's the witness of John the Baptist. There's the witness of the Father. There is the witness of my works. And there is the witness of the Word of God all testifying that if you will believe... Come to me, repent of your sin, and trust in Christ, you will live. And that's the word that Jesus brought to his hometown. It's a word I bring to you this morning. If you will repent of your sin and turn and trust in Christ, you will live. Don't stumble over what, what is straightforward. I ask you, do you love the darkness more than the light? Because your deeds are evil. Are you willing to acknowledge that you're walking away from God in your attitudes and your actions and turn and trust in Christ and his death on the cross as a payment for your sin so that you can have new life? That's what Jesus offers. And that life begins now. Not eternal life is not a tack-on at the end of my life. No, it continues. <laughs> it's just my body is gone and then I get a resurrected body and I keep living. That's what Jesus teaches. Are you offended by Jesus? If you're offended by Jesus, God needs to do a work in your heart so that you will repent of your sin and turn and trust in Him. You see, don't be oblivious to what's obvious. Don't focus on what's futile. Don't stumble over what's straightforward. And finally, don't be impervious to what's important. There's two actions by Jesus that confirm His identity, His ministry and which condemn any unbelief in our lives. First of all, if we look at verses 57, the end of verse 57, it says, he says, he confronts their hostility. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Familiarity breeds contempt, right? We know him too well to take him seriously. And Jesus says, wait, a prophet, notice how he called himself, prophet. A prophet is not without honor except in his own home. Now, we know he's more than a prophet. But he, he thinks he's a prophet. And he's without honor in his own home. I remember after my first semester in college, I was the smartest guy in the world. I mean, I came home so full of stuff that my family absolutely needed to know for their betterment. You know. And I was, you know, more than happy to share it with them. They weren't really impressed. In fact, I'm surprised my mom even fed me. You know, I'm surprised my dad let me stay in the house. You know, familiarity breeds contempt. And here they are. Here's Jesus. They couldn't deny, you know, they couldn't deny his superior activity and his his authority. So they discounted him, you know to justify their unbelief. He boldly declares, I am important. You know, a prophet is not without honor accepting his own home. So they, he confronts their hostility and then he curtailed his activity. Notice it says in verse 58 that he didn't do very many miracles there. It wasn't because he was unable to do miracles. It was because he chose not to do miracles. And the reason he chose not to do miracles was the same reason that they chose not to believe in him. They had the facts. They didn't trust in Jesus and they rejected him. So he says, okay, so you don't believe, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to pander to your insensitivities. I'm not going to try to impress you with some sensationalism, which really doesn't matter because you really don't believe anyway. I'm not here for a dog and pony show. See, what what faith typically fueled miracles, right? We see it in Matthew chapter 8. We've seen it in Matthew 8, Matthew chapter 9. All these people, never have I seen such great faith. You see a centurions, uh, daughter healed. you see uh, this woman with the issue of blood healed. You see all these miracles taking place, and what faith typically unleashes, fuels, unbelief curtails. Just nothing, no big deal, not going to do anything. So Jesus didn't do it. Jesus didn't do it. But amazingly, here he is. This is the second time he'd been to Nazareth. The first time he was in Nazareth, he almost got strung up. He almost got murdered. They were so ticked off at him that they were going to t- take him, but it was not yet his time. They were going to take him out. But it wasn't his time. Their hearts were like <laughs> the hard path where the seed was sown and the birds came and snatched it away. And yet here he is the second time. Why? Because it's God's work, and it's God's word in God's time. And he knows. Jesus knows. It's not up to me. It's up to the Spirit of God working in these people to change their hearts. And the same is true for you. So he says, he gives the invitation again. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He makes that invitation to you right now. Even though you may have been the hardest person, the hardest the hardest person, the most stubborn, the most spiritually blind person, his invitation is still here. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, it's not too late. And I will give you rest. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ's death on the cross as the payment of your sin. And be free. And for you and I who know Christ, What a message for us to keep sharing the gospel, even with the people we think that it's a waste. No chance. Oh, no, Jesus went back. He gave him a chance. He was there. I like the way David Platt summarizes this whole section, 53 through 58. He says, they heard his words, they saw his works, and they denied him worship. They heard his words saw his works, and they denied him worship. Are you an unbeliever ignoring his works? Are you, are you ignoring what's obvious? Are you focused on what's futile? Are you stumbling over what is straightforward? Are you arrogantly impervious? My call to you is don't deny Jesus the worship that he's due. Turn and trust in him. It's not too late. Consider the evidence and trust Christ. If you're here, a believer, then let's take a lesson from Jesus. A year earlier, he had almost been taken out. Uh, We can keep sharing the gospel with people. That's what God wants us to do. Our job is merely to bring Christ to people so that God can bring people to Christ. Isn't it interesting that, I'm sorry, I gotta stop asking that question. It's interesting to me that it was denial that brought Jesus to the cross. It was unbelief. The reason he went to the cross was because of unbelief. And it was the people on the cross, he was even saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even then, he was willing to be merciful. The thief on the cross, will you forgive me? Today you'll be with me in paradise. At the last moment, he came to Christ. And so as we break bread and we drink this juice as symbols of his body broken and his blood shed, we are remembering his mercy and declaring that the God of the universe sent his son to die so that we could be free. Undeserved as we are. Mercifully forgiven. And we just want you to be part of the family. if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your lord and savior we invite you to celebrate communion with us but first we ask that you take a few moments and if you're worshiping with us online same thing examine your heart and confess your sin so that you take and drink and eat with a heart as much as possible that's clean before god the praise team's going to come and they're going to lead us in a song and during that song you Take your time, and then when appropriate, you can take the juice and the bread and and partake. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus. Thank you for this picture of unbelief, hardened unbelief. And I pray that if there's anyone here listening this morning who's been entrenched and feel like they're beyond rescue, beyond saving, I pray that they would, that you Holy Spirit, would open their eyes, remove the scales, and that the conviction in their heart, they would not ignore it, but they would not turn from it, but they would repent of their sin and confess and say, I'm wretched, Lord. I deserve judgment. I thank you that Jesus died for me. I accept his death as a payment of my, I deserve. I invite you to be my Lord and Master. And those of us who know you, Lord, may we take this bread and this juice with joy, humble joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Your only son, no sin to hide. But you have sent him from your side to walk upon this guilty side. And to become the Lamb of God Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? I know who goes before me I know who stands behind The God of angel army is always by my side well one who reigns forever he is a friend of mine the god of angel armies is always by my side and nothing formed against me shall stand